Hello, and welcome to No Man's Land. We are a podcast and publication about moderate politics, in particular, about how we can have a discourse that avoids a culture war. Hence the name, about being between two warring trenches. The podcast is run by me, Steve O'Neill, and my collaborator, Martin Rogers. We tend to be joined each week by a guest to talk us through a topic in depth, and you can find us on Medium or wherever you get your podcasts. We really hope you enjoy it. Oh, and please do follow us and leave a review. Hello, and welcome to the No Man's Land podcast. I'm joined, as always, by Steve O'Neill. Welcome, Steve. Thanks, Martin. And we're also joined by our special guest, Ryan Wayne. Now, the last few months have been challenging for the Conservative Party, the response to the pandemic, to Christmas parties, and opinion polls to say nothing of losing a safe seat means that muttering about a leadership challenge are growing in volume. But despite the position that the government find themselves in, voters still seem unsure of Labour, with many saying that they don't know what the party stands for. And so, to explore these issues, Ryan Wayne joins us from the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change to discuss this. Ryan, thank you very much for joining us. Please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself and your work. Great. Thanks, Martin. And, and thanks, Steve, as well, for inviting me onto the podcast. Uh, I think it's great that we're having this conversation today. And I think, you know, true to the brands, things will only get better if we if we keep talking about it. So uh, I'm Executive Director of Politics at the Tony Blair Institute. It's a job I've been doing for a couple of years now. And the Institute was set up some time ago, really with a focus on renewing progressive politics. So we've got a policy arm called Renewing the Centre, very original naming but essentially say what you see we believe that there is a politics that sits somewhere between to use some live examples from the last election uh, uh jeremy corbyn and a boris johnson and within that politics not only is there votes to be won but actually there is a, a future facing agenda to be built for this country and for other countries to choose to adopt it as well that we'll see growth, that we'll see better jobs, that we'll see progress being made on some of the social issues that we care about, but doing it in a way which brings people together as opposed to pushing them apart. And so the work that we've been doing over the last month, as well as building on some of the, the policy work that our teams have been doing to an exceptional standard over the last couple of years, come up with the ideas that would fill that vacuum, we've been looking at the politics of it because it's really important that we, we understand that and understand how the main political vehicles need to change what their challenges are, what needs to happen, and also to understand where voters are, and often looking at the chasm between parties and between voters as well. So that's what we've been doing. In terms of me, myself, uh, I am a scouser, Liverpoolian. You can probably tell that from the accent. Uh, hopefully there's some sort of transcript that those who are accustomed to British regional accents can pick up on after this. Uh, but I'm born and bred in Liverpool, which probably fair to describe as a Labour city and quite a traditional left Labour city. Um, so it'll probably surprise some of your listeners that they're hearing this accent of someone who works for the Tony Blair Institute. But I've been on a political journey for the last 20 plus years, and I think really understood the different forces within progressive politics and what's going right and what's going wrong and how you need to tie those together. Um, but also, you know, I am. I hate to fall into the trap of identity politics, but I think sometimes it is important because this is an important group 
I am, I guess, a, a white working class boy. And that really matters when it comes to who politics is serving and who politics isn't. Um, but I'm really looking forward to this conversation today and really keen to talk about how we, we get progressive politics back into power again. All right. Well, thanks, Ryan. I mean, first thing, let's start with, with what you mean by progressive politics, what you mean by the centre and renewing it. And then, and I think this is sort of related, so I'll put this up early doors as well. Is the Labour Party the right sort of vehicle? You talked about vehicles. So is the Labour Party the right vehicle for the progressive politics and the centre that you talked about? Great. Well, let me take that first question. What do you mean by progressive politics? This, this is a question I ask myself all the time. Bear in mind that the Tony Institute has talked about progressive politics for some time now. I don't think there is a concrete definition of it. And we could delve down and look at different manifestos and different policies and different approaches that make up progressive politics around the world. But actually, for me, it's about keeping it super simple. Progressive politics is ultimately about making people's lives better. And it's about finding effective policy, introducing new ideas and innovations to a country that will ultimately improve people's lives and do that by improving public services like the NHS. So we don't just talk about how much money we pour into it, but actually how we change it so it better serves people. It'll have an answer to the social care crisis. It'll improve education beyond any standard that we've seen in the last few years. And ultimately, it will look forward. In a British context, that means understanding what Britain's place in the world is post-Brexit and really trying to build a new economic agenda that will deliver for people that will return us back to growth and will mean that we can invest money in the country and invest money in the country's future as well. So progressive Ryan, policy- sorry, do you mind if I just come in there? So you've talked about improving, like making lives lives better, but that doesn't that apply to any kind of politics? What is distinct about progressive politics that um, is different from any other kind of politics that seeks to improve people's lives? Surely that is what any kind of politics would would seek to do. So what is distinct about the progressive politics that you uh, obviously believe in? Well, first and foremost, the fact that we believe in it, it's a politics I subscribe to, right? So this is where I think the answers lie. But we're not beholden to any traditional ideology. We don't feel obliged to lean into this statist leftism where everything has to be owned and nationalised by the state. That's a means to an end. Equally, we don't always have to go rightwards and work out how we try and keep things the same or make the state as small as possible. We free ourselves from the shackles of that. And instead, it's an unadulterated, completely focused look ahead. What does the future hold? What are the challenges and opportunities? And how do we move in that direction? So for me, progress, it's, it's, there's a kineticism there. It's about mobility and, and always looking ahead and moving at pace towards the future. You can't just wait for it to arrive. You've really got to lean into it. So that's what the progress is. The progress is about moving forwards and really leaning in to the future. And our belief is that we are there to serve everyone in society. There is a, a role for government to play. You need to be active. Um, but equally, you don't have to fall into the traps, I think, of the old left where it's about 
Can I jump in and ask Ryan? I think you've hinted at this, but to clarify, when people hear future, they might think, oh, it's all about technology and, and sort of getting the advantages out of that, which is one of the sort of policy and political conversations we're having. But when you say progress, do you also mean social progress as well? And we talk about sort of liberalising type issues. Do you, do you have that as a big part of it? Definitely. But you, you can't have one without the other. If you focus solely on social progress, on cultural issues, I think mean, you fall into the traps the last couple of years where voters who, for the most part, want good jobs, quality lives, quality public services, they'll see you as irrelevant or removed from their priorities. Indeed, our recent polling and recent report on the Labour Party shown that to be a case with Labour in the last few years. So social and cultural issues are definitely part of this. But I think my progressive politics is making sure that they are very much key, very much a payoff of making sure that we are looking to the future and building an economy that's fit for it, one that will serve people and will generate new jobs and, and growth. So in terms of that economy message and that economic message, technology is key. You know, we, we look ahead and see these big revolutions. Tech has been unfolding for some time. This is as big, if not bigger, than the Industrial Revolution. It's literally changing everything. Even if I'm having this conversation now, we couldn't have done this 10, 15 years ago. Everything has changed because of technology. But I do think politics has caught up with that. So progressive politics about looking at that, but the challenges and the opportunities and really you know, the major harnessing them for good. But it's also looking at other revolutions that are taking place, which we are in danger of falling into off-the-shelf solutions from left or right, and that is things like climate change and the green revolution. We need to make sure that we are ready for that, for the, for the again, for the challenges and opportunities that come for it. And even the self-made ones. So Brexit, you know, you you need to move on from this being a, a cultural issue and turn it into an economic one. What is Britain's place in the world? What are the trade relationships that we need to build? How do they link to our political goals as a country? And progressive politics is about taking a broad look at all of that and setting up governments in a way that can take people forward and take people with them and ultimately transform the economy and return us to, to growth again. Do you think then that the Labour Party is the right vehicle for this kind of uh, progressive politics and the uh, renewed sense? Yeah, I think I think the Labour Party has been in trouble in the last couple of years. And there has been, for me, existential moments where it seemed to be totally out of touch with voters and seemingly perceived by voters to be not credible at all, certainly from an economic perspective. And there were times when I, it was heartbreaking for me, it's only been a Labour member for the last 20 years. It was heartbreaking to think that maybe the Labour Party, maybe its days are over. But I do think under Keir Starmer, and we've seen this in the last week actually, under Keir Starmer, things have improved. And I think he has forced the party away from the, the clenches of the far left, which would just make it utterly irrelevant, and has began to detoxify the Labour Party in the, from the perspective of voters. But as anyone will tell you, including Keir himself, I guess, the journey ahead is still very, very long. And the imaging 
voters' minds, those who aren't in and around politics on a day-to-day basis, is probably still tarnished and tainted by the last few years. So there's a long way ahead. But do I see other progressive vehicles that could win elections? No. I think the Labour Party, especially given the steps it's made in the recent years, is the progressive political vehicle in England and indeed in the UK. As long as it keeps making the right steps and keeps moving in the direction it currently is. So I don't see anything outside of it. And I think if you are a progressive in the UK, seeking to transform government, seeking to transform the country, seeking to lean in to the challenges and opportunities that lie ahead, then you'd be a fool not to make the Labour Party your home, at least up until the next election. Ron, one of the reasons we were really keen to to talk to you was the very interesting report that um, uh, TBI produced recently uh, about Labour's politics and and uh, Labour's coalition. So this is the report for listeners is called Red Red, Wall, Red Walls to Red Bridges. Um, I wonder if we could just kick off by you just telling us a bit about that work and some of the things you found. Yeah, of course. So we wanted to understand where Labour's lost voters have gone. So. You know, you had a party that was returning these huge majorities 20, 30 years ago. And it's not actually that long when you think about it. And yet the change in fortunes has been dramatic. And I think we can we can easily skate over where those voters have gone and why things are changing. People are making a lot of assumptions about you know, how the electorate had changed, how the Conservative Party had changed, how Labour changed. We wanted to properly understand that by actually speaking to voters themselves, speaking to those who had left Labour over the last 20 plus years, and speaking to those who had decided to to stay with the party or come back to the party. And we wanted to tie that to demographic data, to understand who these people were, what motivated them, and as well as doing some polling, do some focus groups as well, just to start to unpick maybe some of their criticisms of the Labour Party. Ultimately, to understand where the Labour Party as the UK's progressive political vehicle, how it could knit together a new election winning coalition. And so we ended up polling 6,000 people, which is a sizable sample uh, compared to some previous reports in this space. And what we found was that roughly 11 million people had left the Labour Party by 2019. About half of those had voted for the Conservative Party. A quarter had decided not to vote at all. And another quarter had gone to anti-Brexit parties, the Lib Dems, Plaid and Wales. So some big chunks go into the Conservatives. And if you look at the Tory vote, and our report did this in 2019, so those who voted for Boris Johnson, four in 10 of those Tory voters had previously voted Labour in the past. So something dramatic had changed to move people on in that direction. And what our report ultimately found was that Labour built its election coalition over the years on class. So it managed to successfully unite the working classes with the middle classes in the 90s and noughties. And that had rarely held up for it. And then seemingly... Post-2010, it wavered between pursuing a middle-class 
academic audience. And then under Jeremy Corbyn, again, basing itself on class divisions, going after this working class vote. And I'd say as well, in the early days of Keir Starmer, it was looking at, through quite a narrow lens, the so-called Red War. And again, basing its electoral offer, the electoral appeal on class. But what our report found is that classes basically disappeared as a indicator of how someone will vote. So it used to be in the 70s and 80s that you could pretty much work out whether someone was conservative or Labour based on what social class they were, with some notable exceptions. That is completely gone now to be displaced by age in particular, but also education status. So it left us scratching our heads as we do the report and wondering, is this is Labour Party done now? Can we can we actually knit together an election-winning coalition that traverses those educational divides and traverses those age divides? I think where we ultimately got to was yes. Because the big challenge that all of this presented was that Labour doesn't have a red wall problem. It doesn't have a specific geographic problem. It's got an everywhere problem. And older people seemingly aren't voting for the Labour Party. The most likely voter is someone on the age of 30 who's got a degree. But the flip side of that is that voters now are so volatile. The class divides, I think, have come to an end. And if you look at the makeup of the country, I think in the 80s, there was something significant. I think it was something like 70, 80%. About 70% of the electorate was working class, compared to 34% who were middle class. By 2010, particularly accelerated by 10 years, 13 years of Labour government, it was... It gone down to 43%, so that's a drop in 66% to 43% of the electorate for working class. And the middle class has increased from 34% to 57%. So that's a huge transformative impact on the electorate. And we didn't do this in the paper, but if you look at who the working class are, to who that 43% are now, their lives have changed immaterially as well. They've been lifted out of poverty for the most part. Um, they're more likely to own material goods, more likely to go on holiday, and more likely to have cultural interests that may previously have been aligned to a, a middle-class audience. And what that all means is that everything has changed. So in our view, everything is, everything is up for grabs. And understanding the electorate in this way allowed us to draw the conclusion that there is sufficient common ground in terms of the priorities of these voters. There's no division now between working and middle class. And when it comes to age, if you speak to a younger person or an older person, indeed, if you speak to someone with a degree and someone without a degree, and you ask them what their priorities are, they'll probably tell you something fairly similar, which is they care about ordinary people getting good jobs. They care about making sure the poorest people in society are looked after. And they care about older people as well. If, as we did, you ask them what they think the Labour Party cares about, none of those things will be near the top. 
they'll talk a lot about cultural issues, about so-called woke issues, and you'll see their perception of the Labour Party as being not there for them, not caring about the things they care about. Then if you push them and you ask them whether the Labour Party, if it was to push that aside and it did have a plan for know, creating jobs for ordinary working people or trying to really lower the tax burden on that group, they would immediately switch to distrust around the party's competency and credibility to do that. So it may sound like awful news to the Labour Party. It may sound as if you know they're a busted flush, but actually, for us, that's a huge opportunity. Such a volatile voting population who have broadly aligned priorities. It shows us that this isn't a demand problem when it comes to progressive politics, but it's a supply one. So we can get the Labour Party into gear. If we can get things better organised, the party better presented, if we can improve its credibility and make it more relevant and resonant with ordinary people, with ordinary voters, and not just focus on one particular class over the other, then it puts us in a really good place at the next election. Everything is up for grabs, I think, would be the key optimistic message of this report. Brian, thank you. That's a really great summary for a, a big report. Um, so I think what we'd like to do now is just dig into some specific bits. And I suppose my first question is, is a bit of a zoom out one, as you were doing at the end there, sort of taking the overview. Um, but one thing that stood out to me was that I saw the report argue for the need to sort of win over the centre, win over the middle of the road voters who maybe you, in the past used to refer to swing voters. And, yeah. and that feels like it's something that's been less um, high up on the agenda in the sort of punditry and conversations that we've had recently in recent years. So I, I can see a sort of um, maybe a left-leaning sort of person in the Labour Party putting to you and saying, well, you're fighting the old war. That was late 90s, uh, 2010s. It's all different now. Is it really all about the sort of centre-ground voter? What, what would be your response to that? My response would be, you've got to listen to voters, which is what we did. And all of them, and a majority of people who'd left the Labour Party, identified themselves as being in the centre. Now, any poster will tell you that that is what people do. Every single person, regardless of where they sit politically, put themselves in the centre. So on the one hand, you could dismiss that and say, well, people are going to say that, aren't they? But it's when you ask the same group of people where they put the Labour Party, and without fail, they put the Labour Party to the far left of them. And so they identify a chasm politically between where they are and what their politics is and where the Labour Party's is. The last 10 years have been the Labour Party just speaking to itself. Like they have failed miserably to get out there. Well, they have got out there, but they still haven't managed to have conversations themselves. They failed miserably to engage and empathise with ordinary people. It's disrespectful, frankly. Thankfully, over the last few years, I think we have started to see a bit of a change in that. And certainly from the top, I get the sense there's an ambition and recognition that Labour needs to get closer to its voters. But if I was to have an argument with a left-leaning person who believes we need to return to the solutions of yesteryear, 
I would tell them two things. One, listen to the voters, listen to them, respect them, go closer to them. And two, look at what's coming down the line. The Labour Party, as was, and the Labour Party adopting just a leftist mindset because it believes that's what it needs to do. It's never going to be able to come up with credible, compelling solutions to these big shifts that are underway now, and which voters, by the way, know are underway and are probably in a market for solutions to them, but that market is currently bereft. I'm an optimist, so I see this as a big, big opportunity for Labour, a big opportunity. So let's just try to put this in a little bit more sort of context. So it's something that we've talked about or touched on in this so far. But how much of Labour's issue is a decline in this working class base? You've talked about the different sort of changing demographics, the percentages of the electorate. So I just want to touch on that a little bit more. And how as much as the working class just moved away from Labour, you know, in the same way that it has some democracy, social democratic parties around the world and that Labour maybe should seek to change to reflect that or to either to accept that they've gone or to go after them, um, perhaps by moving to the left. So can you just talk a little bit about sure. that shift in demographics? Yeah, so I, th- I think it's a, it's a bit of both in terms of the working class is shrinking as a group and I think it is it, moving away from... Labour. But I'd also say as well, Labour's moved away from it too. So if you look at the, the, the I mean, the thing that ultimately matters to me in politics is, is what voters care about, right? So their priorities are jobs, the economy, their family, and looking after other people in society. I mean, that, that should be part of the course of Labour. But, but, but the problem is that the things that Labour's talked about and the thing that Labour's got lost in over the last couple of years. They're just so far removed from these people's lives. Like, you can get lost in a discussion on trans rights at a CLP meeting now, constituency Labour Party meeting. People aren't talking about that in everyday conversation. Or if they are, they're probably talking about it in a way which, I mean, they ultimately probably empathise with the cause at the heart of it, but they're probably talking in a way which is, this is a little bit silly, it's a bit ridiculous, this is not what we should be focused on. So Labour's moved away, I think, by getting lost in some of these cultural wars and some of these cultural battles. Um, but this group as well, you know, they are they are not the caricatured working class that we may have kidded ourselves on the Labour Party they were over the last five, ten years. You know, they are, they're not, they're doing different jobs from the working classes 20, 30 years ago. They're not stuck down the mind, but they're materially better off. <clears throat> but the truth is that that change of circumstances requires different solutions. So one of the political scientists who we drew upon in our report someone from the big name in the 1970s. It was a guy called, let me just grab my name. 
Peter Pulsner, Peter Pulsner in the 70s talked about class being the definition of voter behaviour. Everything else was irrelevant. And he also talked about the role that trade unions played, for example, in the 70s. And that actually the default position of a working class person in Britain was conservatism, was social conservatism. But by belonging to trade unions, they had these, what he referred to as institutions of deviation. So organisations that could change the attitudes and behaviours of a group of people from what they would otherwise be expected to be. So working classes, traditionally conservative, actually, and there's always been a huge chunk of working classes who have voted for the Conservative Party. But through the 1780s, through collective action, through trade union membership, they went, they were channeled towards the, the Labour Party. And the Labour Party was seen as the party for workers. And then also linked, attached to that was the Labour Party being the party for cultural change. And there's been a collapse in trade union engagement. That's only membership of trade union engagement over the last few years. So these traditional vehicles, which would direct people from working classes into the Labour Party, they've diminished. They've become irrelevant in, in many ways. They've fallen to trap the Labour Party did over the last 10 years. So you end up in a situation where the working class is defaulting back to something, which a behaviour or an attitude has always been associated with them which is social conservatism. So I don't mean they've necessarily changed, but maybe some of the political interactions, some of the institutions around them have changed, which has in turn cost the Labour Party engagement and ultimately voters. But the thing I would bring it all back to is that it is the priorities of the working classes. They, they haven't changed. They are still economic in nature and it's still if a political vehicle exists that can show them a roadmap to excellent jobs to growth to a better life materially for their family and for themselves they will vote for it and it doesn't matter whether that comes from the left or the right of the political spectrum I think I think the point you make about focusing on the bread and butter economics I, I can't imagine many challenging that um, but I think the cultural side of this, you touched on a little bit uh, beginning of when you started speaking, that one feels really tricky to me. Um, I noticed the report talked about taking a kind of a more common sense liberals or capital L liberal approach to that. I wonder if you could pick out what that means in practice, but it seems to me that even if Labour wanted to position itself that way, the kind of tone of the debate makes it very difficult for it not to come across, as you say, as sort of, um, slightly extreme, or, or at least be put in a very awkward position on these issues. So, do do you have any ideas? And I realise it's a hard question of, of the way through that that difficulty for Labour. Yeah, I mean, to, to be honest, when it comes to cultural issues, the reality is that a lot of voters actually don't don't really care about them in the sense that they don't dominate daily discourse in the way that they may do with activists. Say, like, however. I think the, what we mean by, in the report by taking a common sense position is that the Labour Party is seen as irrelevant to most voters. And by not taking a common sense position on 
certain cultural issues. So whether that's I don't know, immigration as a cultural issue or trans as a cultural issue, say two big conversations that you talk about on a daily basis, certainly in activist uh, circles. If Labour doesn't take a common sense position, as I've seen, to take no position at all and create a vacuum that is then filled by the loudest voices from its backbenchers or you know its, its extreme activists, then you risk being seen as increasingly irrelevant or exacerbating that irrelevance to the general voter. And you can also be seen as moving away from their priorities as well. If you start to get lost, engaged too heavily in these conversations. And what I always say is that if you, you're the Labour Party, you get a limited hearing with the public. It's almost like a bucket. And you can choose to fill that bucket up with whatever you want. You go on there and you can talk about the internal dynamic dynamics. You can talk about what happens at the last NEC meeting. If you do, people won't listen, won't care, won't hear it. So you've got to use that bucket wisely. And so you've got to get messages and policies in there that resonate with people and resonate with their priorities. If you choose to fill that bucket with cultural issues and just talking solely about cultural issues, and even worse, if you're seen to be talking about them but not taking a view on them or talking about them and taking an extreme view, then that will shape how you're perceived by the voter. So for us, taking a common sense view on political issues, on, on cultural issues, is as much about just shutting them down and being able to move on from them as it is to making a policy point on them. So take trans as an example. Like this is such a has become such a complicated, sometimes academic issue. It is entering, has entered the mainstream, and people do talk about it and, and the media's been quite relentless in bringing up stories about it. And it really divides Labour's activist base. But a common sense position on trans rights, I think, is to recognise that there are very vulnerable people at the heart of this who need to be protected. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. And indeed, when we've spoken to voters about it, you don't necessarily engage in the cultural issues. They believe that people should be able to be themselves. And if anyone's suffering, you know, you, you, they need the support. But then on the other hand, if you start getting lost and start to question basic facts around the difference between sex and gender or biology, or you refuse to engage in that conversation because you know that you will be shouted down or personally misinterpreted by your activist base, then you're in real trouble. And people will either hear the silence or hear what could otherwise be quite an extreme view by rejecting science, for example. So it's a real tricky one. But I actually think the solution is for Labour to look outwards, to look forward, and to try and get, well, make, not just try, but make it their 
objective to get as close to the, the voters as possible and to be in a position where they're talking about voters' priorities. And all of this, by the way, is about getting into power because I belong in the Labour Party because I believe in what we talked about before, progress on some of these cultural issues. And the Labour government that has transformed the rights of women, of the LGBTQ plus population. And I trust Labour in power more than I do the Conservatives to look after the most marginalised and the most vulnerable in society and push forward the rights of those people. Um, but we've got to make sure we get into power first. So I think, Ryan, correct me if I'm wrong, you said Labour were best to focus on non-cultural issues and the things that voters care about, but not to be caught without a kind of a solid common sense position on it when when pushed. I think that was the gist. And I, I think back to, um, and I think slightly scandalously, Rachel Reeves was sort of ambushed on, about this by um, uh, LBC um, journalist, um, to name Nick Ferrari. Yeah. Um, and this whole kind of thing about cervixes, but it was a complete distraction. But I felt that she was basically put in an impossible position in that interview because she was supposed to be there to talk about the economy. She's shadow chancellor. And yeah. to have that. And so that's why I say it was scandalous, but it's very hard for her to avoid it. But if I heard you right, I think she'd been better off being sort of given a slightly clearer middle of the road line to take on it rather than just trying to avoid it and, and looking a bit sort of rabbit in headlights in that difficult situation. Have I, have I, have I sort of summarised that about right? Yeah, I think that is right. That's a good summary of it. The thing I would stress, though, is that you don't want to lose the progressive bit. This is not about denying there are challenges for certain groups in society and there are sensitive issues around these cultural so-called cultural wars. And maybe sometimes it is about people being able to express that a little bit more. But I do think exactly that, being able to adopt a concrete position that you genuinely believe in, voters will respond positively to that. And you'd hope as well that the media will too and allow you to start talking about the things that actually do matter. Because Rachel Reeves talking about the economy on LBC she needs to be able to do that. That is critical to Labour winning elections. So let's take your advice and move on from cultural issues. <laughs> yeah. In fact, hopefully to something that's kind of been a bit thread throughout the whole thing, I think, which is about the sort of the day-to-day, the nitty-gritty, the economics. And just to ask in closing, what you think that Labour should do about the impending cost of living crisis? We've heard about rising inflation energy price rises coming down the road and not uh, forgetting, of course, tax rises, whether the um, national insurance, fiscal drag around income tax. So what do you think that Labour should do to tackle the rising cost of living crisis and where Labour should therefore be heading economically to re-establish itself as a sort of credible economic party? Yeah, the the last point, by the way, is, is critical because... It would be so easy now to fall into the trap of undermining long-term economic competence for the Labour Party by talking about short-term fixes to this actually huge challenge and a lot of people will will feel it, especially when the national insurance increase comes in in April. But if the Labour Party 
start to talk and for things that have an implicit spending implication, I think we are in real trouble because they will be being totaled up and they'll come out during election time. And for Labour not to be seen as economically credible come 2023, 2024, we're going to be in real trouble. So we just need to keep an eye on that. So in relation to this particular issue, I, first of all, think, I think the Labour Party's been good on this. The national insurance increase for social care, I think, is a, is a disaster, actually, for two reasons. One, I think it, it's taken money from the wrong people at the wrong time. But two, and this is where the progressive politics stuff comes into play, how we do social care in the next 5, 10, 20 years probably needs to change quite radically. The role of technology in it and the role of reform, which seems to be a word that was forgotten in the last five, ten years. The role of reform is dramatic. And I think there is a, an alternative way on social care that won't be seeing people hit with a national insurance increase come April. So obviously that's happening, but I think Labour can make sure that people know that there is an alternative way of funding social care and importantly an alternative way of doing social care moving forward but we are going to see fuel prices increase and we cost about i think labor's called for cutting vat on bills cost about two billion quid so it's not an insubstantial amount of money but if i was labor i would I do think people are going to be hit quite hard by this and Labour needs to make sure that they are funding that call for the reduction in VAT. So where do you find that two billion quid from? But ultimately, I think where we've got to get to is how do we get back to growth? Because we are talking about tax increases and we're talking about VAT cuts. Because the money's not coming into the country. And I think the Labour Party has a real opportunity to become the party of innovation, of creativity, the party of technology, the party that understands what is coming down the line, and ultimately the party that offers a plan for Britain. I think voters are in the market for this. I really, I really do. I think post-Brexit, post-pandemic, people question themselves, what is Britain's place in the world? What, what is the plan? How do we move forward as a country? Where do the jobs come from? And I think developing by the next election a compelling, clear industrial strategy that has jobs at its heart critically is accessible to people, is, is easy to understand and is delivered with conviction and persuasion by Keir Starmer. I think that is the way forward for Labour and for Britain and being able to stand up in front of the country and say, here's what has changed in the UK. Here's what's going to change. Here are the factors and forces beyond our control. And here's what we need to do in order to count for them. This is what that means. This, this is what it means for Merseyside, for Manchester, for the Northeast, for Liverpool, 
for the southwest, for the southeast, and just been able to show people what Labour's plan for Britain look like and what it means to them and what it means to their local area. I think that is going to be key and it'll help you, it'll help Labour leave some of these battles on tax and spend behind. There needs to be a real stake in the ground moment that says this is the opportunity for Britain and this is how we unlock it. Because if you look at the 90s and noughties, the reason why New Labour were able to invest in public services and increase spending in the NHS whilst also keeping taxes low is because the country was in a period of growth. And Labour isn't associated with that, but I think it can be. I really do think there's a big space for it. And so and you've got to remain economically credible by not making spending commitments that we can't afford. But really, I do think there is an argument to be made that we can have more investment and growth in the country with the right plan and the right leadership. And Labour should be doing everything it can to position itself as the party that can deliver that. Ryan, that's a really great closing statement, I think, to sum, sum everything up. Um, before we let you go, I actually want to ask you about um, uh, some work you did, or I understand that you did, in a uh, past career. So um, am I right in saying that you were involved in the last time Labour did a kind of cost of living campaign yes. and the very memorable stuff about the kind of price freeze? I just wondered if you could tell us how you were involved in coming up with that. It was one of the really memorable sort of, um, uh, sort of policies that cut through of, of that kind of 2014 to so 2015 time. So it's interesting to hear the story, if you don't mind telling it. Yeah, of course. So I worked in, my past life was in advertising, so I worked in a big creative agency called TBWA. And back in the 90s, it actually used to be known informally as Tony Blair Wins Again, because it was the, the Labour Party's advertising agency of choice in the 97 election, 2001 election. Me being politically minded, uh, we'd, I joined in, I think, 2010, and I, the, the TBWA had, by that point, lost the Labour Party count, and I thought, I really want to bring it back. So we started informal conversations with Ed Miliband's team, and going really positively, they, they came to us with a big wad of papers and an NDA and said, sign this, and here's our big policy that we want to announce at the next Labour Party conference, which by that point is like a couple of months away. This big policy paper, it was complicated, it was academic, it was well thought out, there was a strong evidence base for it. But if you put that into the mix, you are going to lose people, people aren't going to engage with it. And ultimately, it was about cost of living. And at the core of it was putting a cap on energy prices. So advertising agencies at their best make things super simple, right? So we took this complicated big wad of papers and put it through our creative mix. We ended up coming up with a slogan, which was frozen bills and freeze that bill. So it sounds really simple and obvious now, but the best ideas do. And I promise you at the time, no one was talking about frozen bills. But to try and then visualize it and make it travel as far and wide as possible, us being you know, the classic creative agency, we spent far too much money 
And I don't even think we recouped this from the Labour Party. We spent far too much money on actually taking a bill, something that looked like an energy bill, and putting it inside a giant ice cube and getting that frozen and shipping that over to the Labour Party conference. And MPs were lined up to get their photos taken with it. It was on the front page of various national newspapers the next day. Um, and actually, it was my friend who was equipped with the job of driving the ice cube from the workshop where it was being made in London to the conference centre, which was in Brighton. We ended up crashing the van, which was interesting when we had a slowly melting ice cube in the back of it. But we managed to get it there safe and sound. And as I say, Labour MPs lined up in front of it. And then we had these tiny ice cubes with little bills inside that we gave out to the media and then clear graphics. It may all sound a little bit twee and potentially even silly, but what it meant was there was real consistency of message and absolute clarity in what the Labour Party was trying to convey that day. And I think that combined with the fact that it did manage really well to keep it as a secret and keep, keep it away from the media. Plus the fact that people were really feeling the rise in energy prices, really feeling that in their back pocket. They had this cocktail that meant it went, it travelled far and wide the next day. So we were so pleased to wake up the day after Labour conference and just see pretty much every national newspaper reflecting the fact that Labour was committing to freezing bills for the next year. Um, and then obviously what unfolded next was the Tories essentially stole that idea and implemented it. But ultimately, I guess that's good for people because, you know, their, their bills were frozen. Um, but I don't think Ed Miliband at the time was best pleased. Um, but a real example of what happens when, yeah, a good policy at the right time and very, very clear messaging, it can just go far and wide and really resonate with the media and normal voters as well. Well, Ryan, look, thank you very much for that. Thank you very much again yeah, for joining us, Ryan. Brilliant. Well, thank you both. And like I say, I think it's just important that we, we talk about these things. So it's great. Appreciate it. Well, Ryan, thank you very much for joining us and uh, really appreciate you taking the time and uh, all the best with the work at the Institute. Thank you, Steve. And thank you very much for listening, everyone. This has been the No Man's Land podcast and thank you and goodbye.